0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am pleased today to welcome Luke Messick, who is the author of Your Money or Your Life, Debt Collection in American Medicine, new from Oxford University Press. Luke, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. Real, real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. So before we start talking about the book itself, I wonder if you might fo- tell folks a little bit about who you are and what you do and what brought you to this book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an emergency room doctor. I uh, work you know, in hospitals delivering emergency care to patients uh, every day or every day I'm on shift. Uh, I'm also a historian, uh, trained as a historian of medicine. And my previous work has largely focused on the history of medicine in Southern Africa. Um, but in recent years, uh, due largely to my clinical responsibilities and what I've seen uh, in the clinic and from my patients, I've, I've turned my attention to the United States, and particularly to this issue of, of debt collection and medical debt.
0: Uh, perfect. So why don't we do a little foundation laying? So, so uh, tell us a little bit, what is, what is the scale and scope of the problem here? How much uh, debt do Americans hold as a consequence of their interaction with the medical system? And then what can we say about the people who are most, most likely to hold that debt? Absolutely, some of it's hard to measure. To be honest, there's different measures of
1: debt. You know, uh, are you talking about the debt that's in collections? Are you talking about the debt that people hold uh, to medical providers? Are you talking about the debt incurred um, as a result of lost wages? Uh, but in general, uh, you know, some more recent estimates uh, say that uh, as many as a hundred million Americans uh, owed medical and or dental uh, debt to their providers. And so it's a huge problem, uh, one that affects a huge number of American families, but it does fall uh, along gradients of race, class, and gender as most pathologies in American life do. Um, uh, African-Americans are far more likely to hold medical debt than uh, white Americans. Uh, Women are more likely to hold medical debt uh, than men. And, um, and the poor, low income, are much more likely to hold medical debt. 79% of medical debt in the United States is held by households with zero uh, or negative net worth. So this is a problem uh, that affects you know, the most vulnerable in our society the most acutely.
0: Uh, And perhaps unsurprisingly, you point out that people with disability are more likely to hold debt. uh, And also people who reside in states that have not taken advantage of the Affordable Care Act's Medicaid expansion, also more likely, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the dimensions of this are are pretty staggering. But yeah, if if a state has not expanded Medicaid and there are about a dozen states that still have not expanded uh, Medicaid in accordance with the uh, original terms of the Affordable Care Act before the Supreme Court deemed it to be a decision that states had to make on their own, um, then the the people in those states hold far more medical debt uh, than in states that have expanded Medicaid. And Medicaid is a a great program that does allow um, people to access care with minimal uh, point of care fees. Uh, and these are folks who uh, are are living at low incomes. So if uh, if the qualifications are more stringent, as they are in states that haven't expanded Medicaid ed- eligibility, then those folks uh, do do tend to carry
0: far more medical debt. Uh, we might also point out you mentioned that women are more likely to carry medical debt, uh, and as you know, the con- that's a consequence of the fact that uh, you're right that pregnancy and childbirth are the most common diagnoses for those with medical debt
1: yeah yeah really really disheartening to be honest i mean yeah. this is this is a uh a, a problem that affects people who have no choice in the matter right I mean, you don't you you incur medical debt largely as a result of um uh you know circumstances beyond your control but you know one thing that we you know, you'd think that our society would provide for would be for the uh the care of uh, women and, and infants or or pregnant women in particular uh, and while some of that uh, care is covered through state programs, it's still a huge cause of of medical debt
0: held by individuals. So we've got this this enormous amount of debt held by very large numbers of people who tend to fall into uh, particular kinds of buckets, so of course that's that's not universal, right? There are people who fall outside those boundaries who also find themselves with medical debt. so, so start to walk us through some of the things that institutions that incur this debt do to try to claim it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think a little bit of a historical perspective is useful here too. Because yeah, great. Uh, you know, this is this is a much longer story. It's a it's a the phenomenon that I uh, chronicle through much of the book is fairly new, is decades old, and not centuries old. But medical debt itself is not new. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, physicians often wrote about how long they ended up holding debt on their own personal books. They were providing care, you know, in their offices or through home visits, and they would present bills to their patients maybe on a quarterly basis, sometimes on a yearly basis. And oftentimes they would you know, deliver these bills themselves and they would hear stories of patients saying, I can't afford them, I, you know, my crop hasn't come in this year, my family member's still ill, I don't have the money for it. And so these personal negotiations would go on where the physician would have to decide what they were going to do with this, with this debt that hadn't been paid. Would they forgive it? Would they decrease it? Would they sever the relationship? Uh, and And there's a lot of writing about what what the physician's' responsibility in those cases were. and it, it was a it was a trying problem for physicians, and some came to different uh, answers. There was some attempts at um, at routinization or you know kind of a uniform response to this kind of debt, but those were usually uh, those were usually uh, not successful because physicians just had to make up their own minds about what they were going to do for their patients when they couldn't afford their couldn't afford their bills. And as but, you know, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no. Uh, so uh, so this was a, this was a problem that was well known to them. It began to change, though. You know, physicians begin to move into larger and larger practices. A lot of them begin to affiliate with hospitals. Hospitals themselves move from an almshouse model where uh, they are providing care largely for charitable cases to being centers where people would, people who could afford to pay or might afford to pay would also seek care. And so the expectation more and more became that if you seek care in a hospital, you're not a charitable case, but rather you are a paying patient either through insurance coverage or private means. Uh, and so uh, this became an issue, not simply for doctors themselves, but for larger institutions. And those larger institutions more and more became... Uh, hospitals. Most hospitals in the United States are still uh, not-for-profit institutions. And so that became kind of the epicenter of this problem. And so a large part of the story I'm telling really came about beginning in the 1980s and 1990s when, uh, as a result of plateauing reimbursements from Medicare and Medicaid and other pressures driving hospitals to some level of um, financial insecurity, as well as you know, pretty convincing sales pitches from debt collectors, hospitals became more and more willing to assign their debts to external debt collectors. Instead of holding it on their books for some time, instead of maintaining that relationship with patients, they would assign it to a third party or sometimes sell it to a third party to allow uh, them to attempt to collect. And their collections methods could prove and did prove uh, far more aggressive. So then we start talking about things like garnishing wages or taking people to court or, um, or uh, reporting uh, their debt to credit agencies or sometimes even foreclosing on their homes or in some cases, even uh, seeking the arrest of patients who didn't appear uh, at their court hearings. So the, this is you know the era from the 80s to the 90s to still continuing today. Uh, when debt collection became much more impersonal and much more aggressive,
0: I wonder if, if to give folks a, a sense of what these processes might look like, you might tell us, uh, share the story that you tell in the book of of Yale New Haven Hospital.
1: Yeah, this is one of the much more documented cases, and one that spurred a level of um, uh, a level of attention to this problem, at least for a time uh, during the early 2000s. I talk about the case of uh, Quentin White, who was a, at the time in the early 2000s, in his late 70s, a retired dry cleaning worker uh, who had, you know, spent his whole life, you know, uh, working low paying jobs. And he and his wife uh, got their care at Yale New Haven Hospital, the teaching hospital for Yale University. And 20 years before this episode, in the early 2000s, so in the early 1980s, uh, Mrs. White had sought care at Yale New Haven Hospital twice in a year, and the debt incurred from that those visits, $16,000 initially, had ballooned over the course of the, previ- of the subsequent 20 years to $40,000 due to interest charged on his debt, even though Mr. White and Mrs. White had paid back the original amount that they had owed. He now owed $40,000 due to debt accrual. And over the course of those 20 years, Mrs. White had unfortunately passed away of uh, cancer. But Mr. White still owed the debt due to this strange doctrine called the doctrine of necessaries, which means that in essence, you're on the hook for the debt of your dead spouse for their medical care, even after they die. And so the hospital had seized Mr. White's bank account. They had placed a lien on his home and they would continue to collect from him. Uh, year after year, sometimes demanding increased payments, even as he was dealing with his own uh, his own health crises, he was now you know living with end day adrenal disease and had his own crises to deal with. So this this episode um, caught the attention of uh, a local reporter um, working for a, a news weekly that's now defunct, uh, as well as an SEIU um, researcher, a young Yale uh, graduate who took up the took up the issue and did some really great uh, shoe leather reporting on the issue. And then finally, the Wall Street Journal, which wrote a series of exposes on the practice at Yale and other hospitals. And that spurred a series of congressional hearings at which large hospital uh, uh, systems were made to testify before Congress, uh, as well as, you know, a lot more um, media attention to the problem. And so for a time, state legislatures and, uh, uh, and the Department of Health and Human Services had a lot of attention to this issue. some new legislation was passed. And one would have hoped that this would have uh, curtailed the problem. but in the decades since we've learned that, you know in most places in the country, the the rates of uh, lawsuits against patients over unpaid medical debts have really not budged at all. In many cases, they've increased. And so this is a problem that's remained with us even through these you know ebbs and flows of media attention.
0: So, I mean, it, it, to, to, to back up to Yale and that, that other case is just to underline this, that the, the, the story that you tell, that's, that's not a one-off, right? This is a widespread practice that affects large numbers of people ostensibly being served by the hospital, correct?
1: Absolutely. You know, it varies from state to state and from hospital system to hospital system. But um, at least, you know, two-thirds of uh, hospitals in a recent survey included in their uh, financial assistance policies, that they would take some uh, level of aggressive collections actions or what, what are called extraordinary collection actions against patients in debt. And, uh, you know, these, you know these, these can run the gamut from, uh, you know, selling debt to a third party to all the way to, to taking a patient to court and seeking to foreclose on their, their home. Uh, but it, this is a common practice. A recent survey at New uh, North Carolina found that thousands of patients there uh, had been sued by hospitals. Um, I myself found that my own hospital, uh, where I did my residency training, uh, was suing patients, uh, hundreds of patients uh, a year uh, who could not, you know, pay their medical debts back. And these are not, you know, these are not patients who, in general, you know, could readily pay back their bills should they, should right. they It's not to. as if they're
0: sitting on the money and are just refusing to turn it over.
1: Exactly. These are folks like Mr. White, who is not an exemplary case, who, you know, live on low incomes and uh, are dealing with health crises of their own uh, and, you know, can ill afford to be spending any of this money paying back their hospital's bills, much, much less the thousands of dollars they're being asked to pay.
0: So... It it can you, talk, you you talked earlier a little bit about about selling debt and the debt collection industry. Can you give folks just sort of an overview of of who are maybe the key players and and what are the practices that they engage in and and how successful have efforts been to try to regulate their behavior? Yeah, this is a really interesting industry and it's
1: one that to be honest I didn't know much about as a physician. You know, it's one of these it's one of these middlemen in the in the health financing process that we just don't. Learn much about, uh, and if you work in health uh, healthcare financial management, then you know a lot about them because they're constantly at your doorstep trying to sell their sell their services, get you to assign them their, assign that your debt to them or sell your debt to them. Um, but the rest of us, you know, those of us providing care every day, really don't hear much about them unless a, a patient brings them up. Uh, but in general, they these can be small fly by night operations, or they can be large large corporations uh, with hundreds of Uh, or thousands of uh, collectors working at call centers uh, around the globe. And uh, some of them specialize in medical debt. Sometimes they work to collect other forms of consumer debt alongside medical debt, you know, credit card debt, car debt, uh, other other forms of consumer debt. But a lot of them specialize in medical debt, which is special for a whole number of reasons, some related to regulation, um, others related to the personal relationships you have to form with uh, healthcare executives in order to get them to sell debt. Uh, but, but these, these corporations or these companies, um, you know, they, they live and die on the, uh, ability to collect from patients. Uh, and so they are willing often to do things that, uh, hospitals historically weren't willing to do. Uh, and so when patients aren't able to pay, uh, you know, after a certain period by federal regulation, then it's kind of open season and then they, these uh, extraordinary collection actions can uh, can be taken. And so, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be summoned to court. They'll be put on, some of them, sometimes they'll be put on payment plans. Sometimes, uh, you know, more aggressive measures will happen and patients will have their bank accounts seized like Mr. White did. They'll have their wages garnished. You can have, you know, in many states up to 25% of your take-home pay garnished, uh, on every paycheck to pay back these debts. Uh, amazingly, some of the uh, largest um, uh, employers who have uh, you know employees with their wages garnished for medical debt are hospitals themselves. You know, you'll see uh, people in in uh, in scrubs filling up courtrooms because they you know they're going to to uh, testify about their own debts that they can't repay. So. This is a problem that affects, you know, low-income workers in the service industry and in the healthcare industry, and so it's a, it's it's a it's a large, burgeoning problem and one that affects uh, healthcare workers themselves.
0: And to state what what. Maybe obvious to folks is because we're disproportionately talking about low-income people. They're more likely to be showing up in court in a very unfamiliar and intimidating environment, often without legal representation themselves. So, as you point out, the the it, it is it, the the most common outcome is a ruling in favor of the debt collector. Correct? Absolutely. In the vast, vast majority of cases, I mean the. the
1: Super small minority of cases, like we're talking single digits, are patients represented by counsel, uh, and you know these aren't criminal cases; these are civil cases. Although it can rise to the level of, of criminal uh, contempt if patients don't uh, don't appear. Well, but for you talk parents. about
0: cases in which someone inadvertently fails to show up for a court date and is arrested yes. and incarcerated. Yes. Yes. So so so.
1: This is, this is another issue, and it's called a, the, the problem of a body attachment. The ACLU has done great work on this, and it's an amazing problem that I didn't, and terrible problem that I didn't even know existed until I started doing this research. But yeah, if you don't appear for a post-judgment hearing to determine how many assets you actually have that can be seized in order to pay this debt, if you don't show up for that court hearing, maybe you didn't receive the summons, maybe you couldn't go, maybe you're you know maybe you're depressed and you don't show up, a warrant you think and, there's no point, right? Yeah, or yeah. You think you think it's worth worth you, you know yeah. you don't you don't know the point of showing up. Many many right. patients don't show up for these hearings and lose by default. But if you don't show up, then a warrant can be issued for your arrest and has been issued for the arrest of of patients um, across the country. This was a problem that was covered by the Wall Street Journal 20 years ago. It's a problem covered by the ACLU in the last few years. It continues to exist. Some states have outlawed it. Many have not, and you know patients end up sitting in jail cells over medical debt ostensibly because they didn't show up to these hearings but all originally arising from the fact that they couldn't afford the care that they were receiving
0: so one of the things that that most surprised me is that that you argue that that this is not a particularly profitable enterprise for hospitals to be engaged in in the first place. No matter which of these paths they take, they wind up not recovering much by way of money, yes?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this was pretty amazing, too. And, you know, I'm not the first one to, to note this. I mean, there's a book called The Price We Pay by Marty McCurry, who's a surgeon at Johns Hopkins, who has a few chapters devoted to this problem as well. And he, he conducted some studies in Virginia where he looked at the hospitals who conducted the most uh, lawsuits, who who filed the most lawsuits against patients. And the one that filed the very most lawsuits against patients uh, to collect on debts ended up garnering something like 0.2% of uh, annual revenue through the practice. It's not, you know, this isn't a large amount of money that they're ever getting uh, through these aggressive collection practices. You know, there's a, there's a saying in the world of hospital billing, which is that self-pay equals no pay, right? Like if if you are made to pay out of pocket these large bills, almost no patients can pay them themselves. And so the expectation right. is that they will not be paid. And so even if you resort to these uh, aggressive measures, maybe you'll squeeze a little bit more out of patients, but it's never going to be enough to really help uh, hospitals bottom line. Right. And so the... And it, yeah, sorry, Brian. Sorry. No, go ahead. Well, the hospitals that end up doing this most often are really not the hospitals who you'd think. It's not the hospitals who are, you know, uh, you know uh, themselves uh, at risk of closing their doors. Some of them are the largest hospitals and in, uh, in the most, you know, uh, well healed hospital systems in the United States. It's, it's really, you know, so, some people might think, oh, this is a practice that a hospital would only do if it's at risk of closing its doors. But it's really not the case. It doesn't help the hospital stay afloat. And so the hospitals that do it aren't the hospitals who are hoping to keep their doors open. So why are they doing it? Yeah, that's that's the question I tried to figure out uh, for quite some time. I think, you know, some of it has to do with the fact that it it's become standard practice uh, among a lot of hospital systems, and so it it seems like you have to keep doing it in order to kind of keep following along with what the rest of the industry is doing. There's some right. concern that. There was always some concern and it was hard to say to what extent this was um, heartfelt that if hospitals didn't pursue debt aggressively, that they'd be running afoul of some Medicare regulations about special dealings and kickbacks. Um, The the Department of Health and Human Services, their lawyers have put out multiple statements saying that that, that's not the case, that this (laughs) is not really, this is not uh, required by federal law. And yet, and, and plenty of hospital systems have forced more the practice altogether and they're not being sued by the federal government. So it's not like they have to do it. But and I think part of the practice is that, you know, this has become so distant from the clinical setting. Healthcare workers like me, I have no idea how much patients are made to pay for their no. care, um, literally literally, no idea. And if patients ask me, I you know, I, I really have very little uh, I can offer in the way of an answer. Aside from to to refer them to the billing and collections office, but some, I think even some billing and collections offices, you know, it's not an excuse so much as something of an answer is that they, they farmed these activities out to third parties, you know, hospital billing and collections, they see their role as fighting with insurance companies to get as much as they can in reimbursements. But they don't like to deal directly with patients and so they'll farm these activities out to third parties and the terms of the agreement are set forward so hospitals should you know be able to tell these third parties what they can and cannot do but a lot of them you know have have distanced themselves in these relationships as well and so there may only be a few people in a hospital system who actually know what's going on which is what i found in my own uh, my own hospital when i confronted them about these practices very few people knew what was going on and even the billing and collections offices said that they didn't realize what was happening until they started looking into it after I brought it to their attention.
0: Can you can you tell us a little bit more about about that story about that sort of what 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 you looked at, what you found, what you did and what the reaction to your employer was?
1: Yeah, sure. I was a I was a resident in training, so in my res, in my specialty training in emergency medicine. And I had a lot of patients coming up to me asking how much their care would cost, worrying about debts they already had, saying they had to leave right away because they couldn't afford you know, even the ambulance ride to the hospital and they never wanted to be here in the first place um, because they were worried about the care, uh, the cost of care. People who showed up far too late for care, uh, people with advanced cancer or showing up too late with strokes or heart attacks uh, for, for fear of the bills that they would incur. And I'd heard about this practice of, of suing patients over unpaid debts. I'd seen it in the the uh, you know, New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. I, but I thought this was, an ex- this was a rare practice. I didn't realize how widespread it was at the time. And I think even in the last few years, we've gotten a better sense in the literature of what you know, the scope and scale of this is. But uh, nevertheless, I, I went down to my county courthouse and typed in uh, you know, the name of my hospital system into uh, the court records. And I found out that my hospital was, in fact, suing patients at a pretty steady clip. And when I looked to see who these patients were and what they were saying, you know, these were single mothers. They were recent immigrants. They were people living on disability and other fixed incomes. Uh, they were not patients who could afford to pay the bill that they were being presented off in a couple thousand dollars. And so they were entering, you know, into, you know, they, they were losing by default in these judgments because they didn't show up to their court dates. And then they were having their wages garnished or signing up for these payment plans that they could ill afford that would take them years and years to ever pay back. If they didn't pay them back, they would be uh, made to pay double-digit interest rates on the debt. And so I I, I um, was pretty ashamed to see that this was going on and pretty shocked. I ended up writing a, a short piece in a, a local blog about it, and then very shortly thereafter got a notification from my my uh, superiors at the hospital that i i really needed to have some meetings with some people um they were none too happy with what i'd done first of all because i hadn't approached them directly i was afraid that they wouldn't pay attention if i did uh, but also because they said i was incorrect that the hospital wasn't doing this uh, I insisted I'd seen the court records. I sent them the the you know the court cases that I had seen, and to their credit, they looked into it. and Within a few weeks, they'd severed their relationship with the uh, uh, with the debt collector, and they'd forgiven the remainder of the of the debt. Uh, that uh, you know the, they, they they dismissed the remainder of the cases that remained on the docket. So, uh, you know, that was a, a a decent outcome. There, there's still plenty of patients you know being made to pay those payment plans at that hospital system, but uh, it it was a decent outcome there. But it just, it did make me realize how widespread this problem was and how, you know, inadequate this like one-off strategy was where, uh, you know, you'll see this in the New York Times, you'll see this in uh, local papers where people will draw attention to this practice at a given hospital system. But it's so widespread that, you know, if if you forgive one patient's debt or even a whole hospital system's debt, you're still just, you know, it's a drop in the ocean of a huge problem.
0: Um, I don't want to get you into any trouble, so you can refuse to answer this question. But do you do you take that hospital at their word that they really didn't know what was going on? I do actually. I'm going to be
1: honest. Okay. I mean, I don't. I try not to paint too many villainous pictures in the book. I think that a lot of the people in this system are doing their jobs as they see them. And for hospital billing and collections, folks that usually involves trying to keep the hospital you know, books right and trying to collect, um, uh, debts as, uh, um, you know, responsibly, but I don't know if they, I don't know if they realize what it does to patients when they resort to these practices and how ultimately fruitless it is even for the hospital, uh, to, to engage in this. So I, I do actually take the hospital system and the people who work in it at their word it's not an excuse. I mean, the ignorance for, for none of us, it, it is, it can no longer be an excuse, but, but I do think that, you know, people are, people are trying to do their jobs as they see them, but we really have to look, look a bit further than that. If we're going to do justice to our patients.
0: So as we work our way toward concluding, what do you think we can and should do about this?
1: Yeah. So there, there's a number of people doing great work, uh, to, try to address the problem. Anything from charitable efforts to radical reimagining. And, you know, in charitable efforts, I'm thinking of work like RIP Medical Debt, which buys and forgives medical debt uh, from hospitals, sometimes from debt collectors, sometimes from, uh, you know, sometimes partnering with even uh, local governments to, to purchase and forgive debt for their, for their citizens. And that's an interesting practice, but, you know, it does not End uh, the system. In fact, it, it in some ways lines the pockets of the people profiting right. from that collection itself, and kind of perpetuates the problem uh, in a way. And so it's it's garnered some, I think, deserved critique, even as it does provide you know relief to individual patients. And it's hard to it's hard to argue against that in a certain way. Uh, but there are other efforts as well, state level reform efforts. So you know, a recent effort in Maryland to ensure that any patient receiving medically necessary care who makes less than 200% of the federal poverty level uh, will have that care given for free at any nonprofit hospital. Um, And other efforts to make sure that patients can and do apply for charity care where it's on offer. You know, this is a problem where, you know, hospitals have made it onerously difficult to apply for charity care, uh, requiring them to submit all uh, manner of forms, sometimes to tell them if they have any goFundMe accounts to, <laughs> to, to pay for their care, uh, all sorts of things that you know patients who are sick and um, uh, and, and poor can, can ill afford to do. And so there's, there's easier ways to do this things like presumptive eligibility software that hospitals, like Oregon Health and Sciences University have used to qualify patients for charity care at the point of care. So when they walk in the door, they are told you will not be made to pay for this.
0: And this is like if if someone is already say on uh, uh, food stamps or WIC, they uh, have already qualified, meeting certain criteria. So we just use that judgment to conclude about their income and process them accordingly, right?
1: Exactly. There's other there's other algorithms that can be used as well. You know, drawing on a soft credit report, things like that. But a soft pull on a credit report. But but yes, this these are these are systems designed to say that you. Would likely already qualify for our income criteria, and therefore we're not going to charge you. Um, but there's larger scale uh, solutions as well. I mean, a lot of the people who pointed to this problem uh, for decades uh, have, you know, have turned to saying, you know, single payer healthcare really is the only answer to this problem. And until patients are not expected to pay at the point of care for their care, until care is paid for by, you know, progressive taxation. Then debt is going to continue to build, and so all these well-meaning efforts to forgive debt or mitigate debt are really just, you know, um, are really just, you know, temporary uh, band-aid solutions for individuals until we stop the
0: flow of debt. You're listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Luke Messick, author of Your Money or Your Life, Debt Collection in American Medicine from Oxford University Press. Uh, a, A terrific and absolutely infuriating book. Thank you so much for joining us, Luke. Thanks so much, Stephen. I really appreciate it.